Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Kevin Lima, an award-winning director whose credits include Disney's animated films A Goofy Movie, Tarzan, as well as 2007's Enchanted starring six-time Oscar nominee Amy Adams. In today's conversation, the 59-year-old and I discuss a wide range of topics. How Kevin's early days at Disney led him to his directorial debut, A Goofy Movie, a project that was born as a creative and emotional exploration of the relationship with his own absent father, the challenges of transitioning into live-action directing with 102 Dalmatians, an experience that Kevin described as, quote, traumatic. Also, how Disney's Enchanted was originally conceived as a potential rated R film, and Kevin's fight to convince the studio to cast a then lesser known Amy Adams as Giselle, a leading role that Adams will reprise in 2022 for a new sequel titled Disenchanted, plus, Kevin's own relationship with storytelling beyond cinema, all of this and much more. If you enjoy the show, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes of the podcast. Look for Soundstage Access across social media to catch a preview of the many guests we'll be interviewing next. We want to continue bringing you new episodes and would really appreciate your support by leaving a review for the podcast. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Kevin, thank you so, so much for joining us on the show. I'm extremely excited. Perhaps it's best to start at CalArts because when you graduated from CalArts, it's my understanding that you walk out with your classmates and you're extremely excited. And that year, Disney just isn't hiring because Black Cauldron had just released and they're picking up the pieces. So I can imagine it must have been a blow, you know, to yourself. And instead, it sounds like you hopped on, you know, the production of Brave Little Toaster and you guys are animating 30 feet a week of material. I'm just wondering, how does that period impact your relationship with your own creativity and your drive when it comes to a career moving forward? Wow, you really did your research, didn't you? (laughs) You know, it was a giant blow at the time because I had spent my entire life wanting to be a Disney animator. Really, from the time I was like five years old, I wanted to work at Disney. And so you get to this moment in time where you're ready to take it all on And there's, you know, there are no positions. They're not hiring. So we were devastated. As an entire class, we were devastated because it's what most of us wanted. But it taught me a real, you know, a real lesson, which is to grab a hold, grab a hold of what's in front of you and turn it into what you want it to be. I mean, I never thought I'd end up in Taiwan. I mean, that's what happened is I got a job on the Brave Little Toaster. And six months later, I was hopping on a plane to go to a world I'd never even dreamed of going to. Made a great group of friends and colleagues that I've worked with my entire life and really learned in the trenches, to be quite honest with you. I mean, you you mentioned it. We had to produce 30 feet a week of animation. That's a lot of full animation. And I think at Disney at the time, sort of the average was about five feet a week. So I learned in the trenches and took it on and just made the most of it. 
And, you know, it's a big part of who I am and, uh, you know, what I've become and the way I tell stories. So it was good. It all worked out, though, because you did eventually make it, you know, over to Disney. And I did. What's interesting about that period, and just to give context to listeners, by the way, you know, you work both in the story and animation department between 88 and 92, primarily as a character designer on Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, but also as a board artist, which gets you story by credit on, on Aladdin. But talking about Brave Little Toaster and, and some of these early Disney productions is that I bet it taught you a lot about what makes not only for good storytelling, but how to run a smooth production. Because I know that some of these Disney films, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Oliver and Company may have been one of them, were just a nightmare to pull off with the resources you had. <laughs> well, especially when you go back to Brave Little Toaster, because we had no money. It wasn't even a Disney project at the time that it was being made. Um, it was ultimately you know, bought by Disney to air on the Disney Channel. But to begin with, it wasn't at all backed by those big numbers. So that was really see to your pants, to be quite honest with you, more than anything else. I mean, I was character designing, doing layout, animating, helping with cleanup. I was, I was just doing it all because we just had to get it done. Oliver and Company was harder for a, for a different reason, just because we were young. We were a young group of animators all starting out at Disney, and most of us, it was our first or second job on a Disney film. So that had its own challenges. You know, how do you wrangle a kid who's, you know, who's been animating a little toaster, a box for a year and get them into the groove of now animating a person, right? It's a totally different group of skills to be able to handle that. So I think if anything, that's what we were dealing with. At the same time, we were dealing with a studio that was attempting to rebuild itself, figure out who they were after, you know, you mentioned the, the Black Cauldron was a, was a huge bomb for Disney. It sort of upset the whole apple cart. And they were trying to figure out who they were and what kind of stories they were gonna tell. My mind is made up. Wait, Master. Googie not let you jump into cauldron. Googie, get out of my way. No, Googie not let his friend die. Taron has many friends. Googie has no friends. Googie, no, don't jump. Wait, no, no. I mean, the 80s is such an interesting period of time because if memory serves correctly, I think out of the nine old man and dad division, most of them were no longer there at the time. None of them were there at the time. None of them. And at the same time, you know, Great Mouse Detective is just like also a number of films which were not, it's a transition period. You know, it's a transition yeah, period. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then we, you know, we got to, we found our footing on uh, The Little Mermaid and then the Renaissance begins, you know. It's all good. I was very, very lucky to be there at that time. The first project I, I must ask you about is a Goofy movie. You know, what's interesting, Kevin, about your career when I study it is that I see two massive moments of adaptation. First, you go from working as a puppeteer and directing community theater, and you go to directing an animated film yourself with a Goofy movie. And then in 2000, which we'll talk about later on, you go from directing animation over to directing live action with 102 Dalmatians. And it was interesting because very few artists, I think, have multiple landmarks in their career where they're trying to reinvent themselves. I personally haven't stopped loving a, a goofy movie. And you have spoken about the fact that as a father-son story, it definitely came from very personal place in your life. My first quote for today, 
Quote, I brought a lot of emotion to the film to make it a contemporary story, which I felt was missing in animation at the time. A John Hughes movie, in a way, close quote. So I was wondering if you could talk about the tone and the screenplay of the film and broadly how it evolved from the movie you, you thought you guys were going to make to the movie that ended up being. Yeah, you know what? It wasn't my dream to make a goofy movie. I, I didn't like always want that to be my, you know, my entree. It happened through a series of fortuitous events. And again, I asked for what I wanted. I said, I want to direct. And then an opportunity came along and I, I grabbed a hold of it and made it into something. The first screenplay that I read was really more of a an hour long or an hour and a half long goofy short in a sense, a lot of antics tied together. At its backbone, it was about a father and a son, but it didn't sort of grab a hold of itself as deeply and as emotionally as I thought, oh, here's an opportunity. I can explore the fact that I didn't have a father. So growing up, my father left when I was 12, maybe. But we never had a close relationship and he disappeared at that moment. And this was a way for me to explore what I imagined a father and son relationship to be with all of its turmoil, right? Because I had very not really having had a relationship with my dad and it being very, I mean, a very difficult time. I thought there is a way to come out the other end of this and be a, to be happy, to be content, to find something new about yourself. And that's what I decided to explore. All in the context of, as you said, why don't we have animated films that are like John Hughes movies? Why don't we have contemporary urban feeling movies out there that are animated. I mean, animation is just a, a medium. It's just a way of making something. You can tell any kind of story you want. Yet at Disney, we were only telling a certain kind of grand. They are deeply emotional. Lion King came out at the same time, and that is a deeply emotional movie. But they all tend to be based in other worlds, fairy tale worlds or the worlds of animals. And I thought, well, let's do something. Let's try to do something a little different. Let's use contemporary music. Let's set it in a way that our audience experiences every day. So that's how it came to be. Over, you know, we developed that movie for, I want to say, probably two years. It was a shorter production schedule than most Disney animated films, which can go four to six years in development and production. We did all the whole thing, I think, in three years. Dad, where I got us, you should let me stay at home. Why? So you ended up in prison? Prison? What are you talking about? Your principal called me. Now what do you think? You even lied to me. I had to. You were ruining my life. I was only trying to take my boy fishing, okay? I'm not your little boy anymore, Dad. I've grown up. I've got my own life now. I know that. I just wanted to be part of it. You're my son, Max. No matter how big you get, you'll always be my son. I think it's important to highlight to listeners that the film was made by the Disney Toon Division, right. which is a part of the you know television animation department. Absolutely. And it's even more amazing that you guys made this film on a fraction of a budget. It is astounding that it came out the way it did. What was it like to manage your time and resources, especially when, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys split production. You started in Burbank, but then you had to split it between studios, including Paris? Yeah, so we, um, we did all of the storyboarding and designing 
recording and editing in Burbank. And you're right. We were part of the television division. I was told, you know, this is how much money you have. It was about, I think we started at about $18 million to make the movie where across the, you know, across the way, The Lion King was being made for 10 times that. And we had to figure out how to get it done. And I think the thing that I put pressure on myself about was to, once we had made a decision, to be able to hold on to that decision, right? To not keep the project constantly fluid. So once we had reels in place, I made sure that I wasn't changing my mind all the time about what it was going to look like, how you were going to shoot it, what angles you were going to shoot it from, that the boards became the blueprint to making the movie. I think that's true of movies in general. If you have a plan and you stick to your plan, you can actually make a movie for a number, right? When you try to find it while it's happening and you're you're looking one way and you set everything up to look in one direction, you go, you know what? I like that better behind me. That's when movies like balloon out of control. So it was a matter of doing that. I even did things like I would, I was in LA and I would tape myself, videotape myself acting out the characters. And then I would send the tapes to Paris and they would animate. And sometimes scenes would come back and I'd be like, oh man, that is so a Kevin expression. Max is like acting just like I did. And it's because I sent these tapes. I did end up going to Paris though. I did end up spending about a year in Paris on the movie. And um, as we were approaching the end of production, we realized we couldn't finish. And uh, we pulled in a couple of other studios, like the Australian studio, which was working on, uh, you know, Disney television as well. We did some cleanup in Toronto, Canada. And I forget, there may have been one, one other place that helped us out. I'm not, I'm not recalling, probably with cleanup. Let me skip ahead a few years and obviously ask you about Tarzan, which you co-directed. Again, 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 a movie that has daddy issues. So. (laughs) Now let me step in talking about that, you know, because it's always interesting to study people's creative patterns. And I realized that, you know, a goofy movie and Tarzan both have themes of relationship between fathers and son. Right. This is the thing. What on the surface look like films for children at their core are very thematically complex stories. Where do you guys usually thread the line between designing a story as adults without forgetting just how children will experience this. Right. Well, I have to say that most of us are the age we are, but in our hearts, we're probably 14. I tend to make movies for myself, movies that I'd like to see. And it just so happens that where I live threads that needle between making something for adults that adults can enjoy, but children can dive into as deeply too, and maybe get something a little different. They each get something a little different from it. If you t- if you look at a Goofy movie, you know, adults look at that movie from Goofy's point of view and kids look at that movie from Max's point of view. So you've got two points of view going against, you know, hitting against each other, which broadens that audience. Tarzan does the same thing in that it is about children and parents, ultimately, and has a much bigger thematic. I mean, you, you alluded to it, that the family thought of thematic that plays through the whole thing. Two worlds, one family is the thematic idea that threads that entire film. So it just comes naturally to me. I don't have to try. It's just the way I think. You can just look at all the movies I've made and say, okay, I get who this person is. I I know where they live. And I don't try to do something other than who I am. You know, I'm a, 
I love that kind of work. I love entertaining families. I love saying things that are important to families. And uh, I don't really have the desire to make a horror movie, to be quite honest with you. It's not, it's not in me. You know, music is, is a key element to establish the tone of a movie. And you have collaborated with some amazing composers and musicians throughout your career. It kind of blew my mind, by the way, to find out that Carter Burwell who scores a lot of the Coen brother movies nowadays, did a goofy movie. That just right. blew my mind. <laughs> because again, we were looking to outside the box, right? We were saying, oh, this isn't your traditional Disney movie. How do we bring a different sound to it? And in Tarzan, you have the, of course, the iconic songs of Phil Collins, right. whose drumming experience kind of fits perfectly the unique percussion-based musical identity the movie needed. Quote, these songs in the movie were needed to keep pushing forward in time. You got into one song and the character is five years old and he comes out on the end and he's a grown man. You go into a song like Strangers Like Me and he knows nothing about men and he comes out on the other end with some understanding of what it's like to be a man. Close quote. Could you talk about the narrative role that music played in Tarzan? It's my understanding you guys tried this as a full-on musical where characters break into songs, but ultimately you realize that the songs were really the internal voice of the characters. It's not something we discovered. It was something we decided. Very, very early on, we said, I can't imagine a world in which Tarzan sits on a, a naked man, sits on a branch, breaking out into an I want song. We just couldn't imagine it. I, I mean, it, it was just beyond me to think of it in that in those terms. There had been a lot of Disney movies that were big musicals at that time leading up to, you know, Tarzan. So we thought, how do we do it again? How do we do something different? How do we bring a different sensibility to the story? And we did try to write a number in which the humans all sang, thinking, well, maybe we can do this thing where humans coming from another world can sing, and then he ends up singing with them at a certain point as he learns English. And it was a crash and burn. We said, this just doesn't fit in the movie. It just doesn't feel right. So we left that to go purely with the original idea we had, that there would be a character who sings the internal journey of Tarzan, or a musician who sings the internal journey of Tarzan. And we went out looking at a bunch of pop musicians. And I'll tell you, because of In the Air Tonight, really, that song just said, this feels like a voice to me that's different from The Lion King. Lion King's a very vocal score. And this is a percussion. This is someone who writes percussion first. And it just felt like it could give us identity. So we approached Phil to be a part of that. And I try to make everything a musical. I just love music. And it also, and you spoke to this a moment ago, it brings economy to storytelling. And when you're telling a story in 75 minutes as opposed to two hours, you need that economy. And songs allow you to deal with great change in a montaged amount of time. You know, it could take two weeks in someone's life, a year in someone's life, but you can condense it to two and a half minutes with a song. So that's what we were doing. We we're saying, how do these songs, although they're pop songs, that they don't live in the characters' mouths, how can they, in fact, still move the, the story forward? Tarzan, what are you doing? Why am I so different? Because you're covered with mud, that's why. No, Kerchak said I don't belong in the family. Never mind what Kerchak said. But, <laughs> Hold still. But look at me. 
I am Tarzan. And do you know what I see? I see two eyes, like mine, and a nose somewhere. Ah, here. <laughs> two ears. <laughs> and let's see, what else? Two hands? That's right. <laughs> Close your eyes. Now forget what you see. What do you feel? My heart. Come here. <laughs> Your heart. See? They're exactly the same. <gasps> Kerjack just can't see that. I'll make him see it. I'll be the best ape ever. <laughs> oh, I bet you will. I finished Tarzan and... I had said to the people I worked with, I want to do a live action movie. Again, I just asked for what I wanted. I think it's time. I'd like to try something new. And it just so happened that Glenn Close was doing 102 Dalmatians and she played the mother ape in Tarzan. And she had asked me, you know, would you ever think about doing this during one of our Tarzan recording sessions? Because you think more like a live action director than you do an animation director, the way you direct. And I said, yeah, of course, I'd love to do that. You know, foolish me. And it just so happened that when I was done with Tarzan, like a month later, boom, it was, you know, we just lost our director on 102 Dalmatians. Would you step in? Next to no time to prep. Script had been written. They were already starting to design. And I just grabbed a hold and went on a ride. And I'll tell you, it was the most traumatic learning experience of my life because I was taking on so much in that moment with no prep. So I really sort of said to my crew, I said, listen, I need to lean on you. This is my film school, right? My live action film school. I know how to tell a story. I know how to, how to connect visuals. I know how to structure. I know how to pace. I just need to figure out what are these tools and how do I use them? I don't want to turn this into therapy, but you've been candid about the fact that this script simply didn't really speak to you personally. And from a creative, technical, and emotional level, I thought to myself, you know, what it must have been for you to direct this project as your first, where you're working with dogs and stunts and European locations and visual effects. And I wonder if it made the process more or less intimidating because of how aware you were of not being interested in the material. Oh man, what I, what I tried to do is what I did with everything, right? Is just look at the opportunity in front of me and figure out, okay, how do I, how do I grab a hold of this and make it into something? But you are right. It wasn't necessarily a story that spoke to me. Again, I wasn't looking at it going, boy, I wish I could make a sequel to 101 Dalmatians, but it was there in front of me. And when I was done, I looked back at it and thought, you know, it's not my grandest hour, but with a little bit of room, a little bit of distance, I was able to say I was, you know, I was given an incredible opportunity. I learned so much from making the movie. I mean, you're right, we did everything. I mean, not only was I trying to tell a story, but I was trying to tell a story with puppies. And each dog can do one thing. So you have to train them to lead up to that one moment on set where they do that one thing. So it was incredibly difficult. And, and, and it takes them 30 takes to do that one thing, by the way. But I gained some fortitude, right? I learned how to be patient in the filmmaking process. You know, if anything, I wish I had had more time with my actors to understand that dynamic a little bit better. And moving forward, I was able to take advantage of that and grab a hold. 
But in the moment with that movie, it was so difficult to, to carry. All of the new things I was learning, all of the new dynamics, some things felt familiar, like I said, but other things were totally new. We spoke about tone earlier, and I think it's crazy to think that Enchanted had like this wild nine-year development, and it was going to have no music, and then it was going to be a rated R film where Giselle's hooking up with a bunch of strippers and they go to a bachelor party. Yeah. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about working with Bill Kelly, the original writer, and this for you as a storyteller, what it's like to balance all these multiple genres into a single story. Right. Well, you know what? It Enchanted really is the the, the epitome of what I what I love to do because it brought together everything, really. I was so, maybe lucky isn't the word, but that that movie came along at that time in my life because it gave me some expertise. I had an animation background. I understood the Disney oeuvre in a way that maybe most directors wouldn't. So I was able to speak to that. I had done, at that point, three live action movies. So I had my, you know, I had a grip on what it was to pull that together. And it was a joy to make that movie. Working with Bill, so Bill had written the very first script. He had sold the spec script to Disney. And it was a different movie than what it became, ultimately. And over the nine years of development, he was replaced by other writers in the process. There was lots of exploration. I think this was before Shrek had come out. So they were trying to do that R-rated fairy tale thing, which wasn't working for them at all. And the movie had really stalled out. And I came along and said, what are you doing? This needs to be a, a love letter to Disney. You shouldn't be making fun of it. And Shrek had already been released. I said, Shrek has already done that. Don't chase that movie. Do something that is sort of originally Disney. They were scared, incredibly scared, but Bill was into it. And Bill and I sat down for an entire summer while we were visually exploring the movie and storyboarding the opening of the piece. He and I sat in a room every day for three months and went through the script, scene by scene by scene. And um, he was incredibly generous to take me on, but I think he also knew that I was a collaborator that could help elevate the material. He said that to me. So it was totally hand in hand pulling that together. I had the idea of making it a musical, and of course, because I have to make everything into a musical. So I came up with this idea that we would track Giselle's emotional state through the songs and the way the songs were delivered. So the first song is totally break into song I want, you know, classic Disney I want song. And over the course of the movie, it leaves her own voice. The music goes into a band. And at the end, it's voiceover. It's, you know, it's needle drop on the movie. So it tracks her becoming a real person by the way in which she relates to song. We came up with that idea. We laid that out within the movie. And uh, it was a beautiful collaboration between Bill and I in which we both saw the same exact film. And it's amazing because, you know, in 2007, Amy Adams had been around. I just rewatched Cast Me If You Can a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And she's in there, but she wasn't, you know, Amy Adams as we know her today. Right, right. So I'm sure in regards to, you know, convincing the studio, but also marketing, you know, I wonder how many conversations must have gone on in regards to making a princess movie in 2007 that kind of reverse engineers people's expectations. Right. So I'm, I'm sure there was a whole ordeal in regards there to- was a le- There was a tremendous amount of pushback. They, they didn't want Amy. I mean, just bluntly, they wanted a star. 
and Amy was not a star. And I had met with a bunch of actresses and auditioned a whole lot of people. And Amy walked into the room and I said, this is that moment when Julie Andrews becomes Mary Poppins. How can we deny this? We have to accept this as naive as I am to, uh, to bring that to the studio. And they all just looked at me like I was crazy. You know, they didn't care how good she was in that test. They wanted a star to sell the movie. And ultimately, I was able to get to Dick Cook, who was the head of the studio at the time, show him this. I said, you have to look at this. This is, this is Mary Poppins. This is Julie Andrews, who has a career. She had a career on Broadway. But the world didn't know her. And we get to introduce the world to Amy Adams. I think she had made Junebug, but it hadn't been released yet. So we, we hired her before that movie came out. And she got some attention for that. I think she even got uh, a nomination for Junebug. So Dick Cook said, I hear you. Let's do it. That's amazing. Yeah. The marketing department didn't even want to make the movie, to be quite honest with you. They tried to shut down the movie continuously during pre-production. They didn't want to make it. They didn't think there was an audience for it. They thought that, you know, boys weren't going to come to see this. So why were we making a movie about Disney princesses? spending all this money it just didn't make sense and they attempted to shut it down many many times if you look at the trailer for for enchanted when it came out it denies the fact that it's about disney princesses it doesn't say in the trailer i mean it should have been from the studio that brought you snow white cinderella and sleeping beauty but instead they say from the studio that brought you toy story and you know they, they just pulled out all these boy movies and lined them up because they were scared shitless that boys wouldn't come and see it and, and the other thing, by the way, everyone talks about Amy Adams, uh, James Marsden. He's a wonder. What a comedic, I mean, it's all of them, uh, you know, Timothy Spall's in there and it's like, what a, what a fun cast. And they committed, you know, they committed to the stereotype, right? They commit to it with everything they have. No one is winking at their character. You know, not winking at the audience saying, look, I'm playing a cartoon character. No, they are a living, breathing cartoon character. So what's the deal with this prince of yours? How long have you two been together? Oh, about a day. You mean it feels like a day because you're so in love? No, it's been a day. You're kidding me, a day? One day? Yes, and tomorrow will be two days. You're joking. You're gonna marry somebody after a day because you fell in love with them? Yes. Yes. We mentioned the fact that the film is a hybrid between live action and animation. And I wonder if it, you know, consciously or subconsciously brought you back to creatively familiar grounds and gives you a leg up in regards to understanding how to schedule both of these parts to meet your release because your prologue needs to specifically lean on how the actors look. So could you talk about working with James Baxter and his team to try and schedule the two together? Yeah, they, 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 they were happening both at the same time because animation takes so long to uh, the process is, is a lengthy process. It all happened in pre-production, to be honest with you. We storyboarded it, not knowing who was going to be in it. We designed costumes, not knowing who the actors were going to be. And when we cast, and we cast before we started animation at all, uh, I think we did an animation test, which didn't have any dialogue in it. We were just trying to set a tone and set a visual look. And once we cast, then we built those costumes for those characters, their animated costumes, so to speak, and we shot live action reference of them. So that way we could now design characters and we had a sense of where the actors were going to take the role so that that could all be incorporated into the animation. 
And as we went along, we were working hand in hand and certain things would happen in the footage that then James and his animators would bring into the animated sequences. That is such an old school, sorry to interrupt. It reminds me of, you know, Alice in Wonderland and, and Snow White and this idea of shooting yeah. reference, uh, which harkens back, you know, to the 40s and 50s. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I knew they had done that and I knew I had to create one character between two mediums. Right. So there didn't seem like there was another way to do it. It just seemed like not the natural way. As I'm looking at the movie, you're shooting in Central Park and Times Square. Yeah. And I wonder how you guys try to manage your time and resources, because those are big locations to shut down and you have quite a lot in Times Square. You know, many, many times I was told that I was crazy. Like, couldn't she come out in Central Park? Wouldn't that be easier? And I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. You want to have her emotionally bombarded by this new world. She has to come out in the most hectic of places in New York, which is Times Square, right? So luckily we shot the entire movie in New York. So we were at the Steiner Studios. So we had this great ability to have cover on stages. We did all of the interiors on stages. We built the ballroom on a stage. So we did a lot sort of undercover. You know, we didn't, we didn't like do two weeks of exterior work. We did it throughout our shoot. So we go inside, then we'd go, we go to stages and then we'd go outside and do Central Park. We'd go inside to do the ballroom and then we'd go outside to do the Brooklyn Bridge. All that kind of work. So it was just a matter of, again, being prepared, right? So I knew exactly the number of shots I wanted. We planned every little piece of it, every little car, every turn that the bus had to take in order to do a reset. We counted our days in that way. I mean, we were in Central Park for a long time. There's no doubt that number just took a long time to do. That number being? That's how you know. That's how you know, right? Yeah. And there was also some other work in Central Park, and we did it over the course of, I think, 12 days. You know, at one point we had, I think, 200 extras around Bethesda Fountain, you know, dancers on top of the 200 extras. And, you know, it was just, it was crazy. It was crazy. But it was all about planning. We planned every single solitary thing. For that number, I went out into the park with my uh, choreographer. And we just looked around and looked for opportunities for dancers and for the ensemble to get involved in the piece so that we could continually build. We said, oh, look, people are taking wedding photos over there. Maybe we could put some people getting married in the middle of this. And we just collected it, planned it all out, knew what we were going to do for each verse of the song. And just went in like a, you know, like a commando mission. And made it work. And made it work, along with hundreds of people screaming for Patrick Dempsey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had to send him over at one point to calm the crowd, just to say, can you go say hi? Just go say hi and ask them to be quiet <laughs> during our takes. And he was great. He, he, you know, he grabbed a hold of that. As I begin to wrap things up, I just want to ask you about your relationship with creativity and if it's not too painful, The Lost Projects, because even though Enchanted may have been the last film you released, there have been so many projects you've worked on in the, you know, in the last years, one of them being, you know, Monkeys of Mumbai. And again, I don't want to bring up painful memories, but how do you try to reclaim all the time and energy you have spent in some of these projects? 
and just translate and moving on to the next thing once that door is closed. It's tough. These have been tough years. I've been right in the driver's seat so many times and things have happened over and over and over again. You bring up Monkeys from Mumbai, there's a movie that I spent two and a half years on. And at the last minute, because someone needed to sell the studio for a certain price, they shut down a tremendous number of projects, $380 million worth of projects at the studio. So it wasn't because of the movie. It wasn't because of me. It was just because of politics and a financial need, the business side of what we do. I am a bit of a survivor. I don't give up. You know, I think I've been trained since I was a little kid to not give up, right? It's just keep grabbing a hold of the next thing. I don't know how to stop. I don't think I will ever stop. I'm always trying to figure out how to tell the next story. Currently, I have three projects set up at different studios, just working away, trying to get one to the starting line. And it's perseverance and grit is something that I think more people need to have in this business. It's, it's not easy. It's not easy to make a movie. People aren't standing there with, you know, $70 million checks handing them out like on the street corner. And you have to continually prove that you're worthy. Even at my age, after all the movies I've made, I'm still having to prove myself. So I just pick myself up by my bootstraps and figure out how to keep going. It's not always easy. And, you know, I spend sometimes months like in despair about what's next and how to, how to grab a hold of it. But I always find a way to keep going. So I think it just has to do with training yourself to persevere, have perseverance. And you can't take it personally, right? You know, you're making a movie with a big, big actor and they decide at the very last second when you're ready to go in to, you know, shoot in two weeks, they decide they don't want to make this movie anymore. That can't be about me, right? That has to be about something else. You know, I can't take it on as being my fault. I still have to believe in my own ability to keep going. We spend so much time talking about your professional career that I think it's worth mentioning that, correct me if I'm wrong, but... Your grandmother, you know, influenced you a lot, starting out, you know, with, with puppeteering and theater yeah. early on in the beginning. And that must have sparked or ignited something in you. So I wonder, how have you noticed your relationship with and your understanding of storytelling evolve over these last 58 years? That's a huge question. We could talk the whole hour about that. It definitely started with my grandmother, without a doubt. She was an actress came over from Portugal as a young girl and found theater in her community. She encouraged me since, you know, I can't remember a time that I wasn't making things and drawing. And we made my first set of puppets together. She made them with me. She was a, she was a seamstress as well. And it was the spark that just keeps on giving, right? I can't imagine a time when it wasn't a part of my life. I don't remember a time when it wasn't. And I can't imagine a time when it won't be. In some way, I can imagine that if I stop making movies, I'll probably, you know, go into my garage and start making puppets again. I just have to keep doing it. And I became a professional puppeteer at a certain point in Rhode Island. I joined a puppetry troupe. And with that group, I was introduced to music, to improv. I gained huge skills, building skills, performance skills. I started to put together and write stories with that group. And it was, a, it was a theater group in which you were working with actors. So that prepared me for things I did later on. And the, the snowball just keeps rolling and picking up new information. And even today, I'm, you know, I'm learning new things about myself. It never really ends. Thank you, Kevin, so much. Your, your work has left such a deep and emotional footprint in, in my heart and so many others. 
and I'm so excited to see what's, what else is coming down the road. Thanks so much. It was a good time talking to you. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Kevin for calling in to record this episode. And to Eric for taking care of the final mixing. As well as Lexi and Caroline, who make sure you can find the podcast across all social media platforms. If you enjoy your program, please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners discover the podcast. If you wish to support us, you can leave us a review to let us know about your favorite conversations so far. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.